what was well, the three I'm... what was the three part series yesterday that you just did yeah so just some four hour runs around here going up the yanner and jeff is back in town from mexico so he actually did the first round for me which nice. was great and then i did the other two and uh yeah i got 14 dogs in the rotation and it was a good good work but Man, so three four hour runs took some breaks in between that's good mm-hmm. good and did you like break like camp them or did you or is this is yeah. inside trading i don't want you to tell me you know your secrets <laughs> yes you know yeah yeah no i've got a um picket line set up actually at the dog yard so when i'm doing a series like that i'll bring them back and instead of putting them back at their houses they go on the picket line and then when we're done with the series they get to chill out in our little bougie garage setup so that's been nice. pretty fun having them in the dog barn they get a relax stretch out rest comfortably Ugh. with water and food and yeah they're, they're pretty spoiled the all dog things spa. considering <laughs> nice the uh and then you're what you're we're working on like four hours of sleep right now for you pretty much yeah <laughs> okay well, you look great so. four hours sleep you're doing good thanks Just thanks <laughs> um yeah intro, we should introduce you huh yeah amanda otto yeah you know about amanda otto oh brandon this is you know this is- i've done I, you know because you guys <laughs> live in alaska and i probably don't bring a lot of value to what you guys can talk about i i've put together a little something for you on the front end so okay. uh thank you for ha- uh joining us today amanda um thanks amanda, for having me amanda comes from idaho and um <laughs> She, you know, after she graduated college, she figured out a way to get to Alaska and start sled dog racing. And um, she's run a bunch of different races, the Solstice 50, Copper Basin. Last year was her first Iditarod. Shout out to the Iditarod. Um, <laughs> below 300. I think you're you're doing the Quest 550 coming up. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. Two weeks from now. <laughs> That's awesome. So. Thank you again for your time. Uh, And so what I wanted to ask is take it back a second because you guys just get into the like all the mushing stuff. And I'm like, I'm kind of curious about like some service level stuff. And so I'm just uh, I'm curious about your transition from college to Alaska. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, like Sean, we have an uncle that lives there. That's kind of how Sean got there. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I'm curious, like. You know, you were playing soccer in college and you decided, all right, I'm going to Alaska. Like what led you to seek that out? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So, um, yeah, I had kind of an untimely end to my soccer career and blew out my knee and it was a big, big bummer. Um, But it kind of opened up the door. Dog sledding had always interested me and I grew up with the fake sled dogs. I had Malamutes growing up and every year my dad would take me to the little mutt race that they had at the American Dog Derby in Ashton, Idaho, which is like an hour away. And we'd do the little mutt race and uh yeah, competed with um my family raises Australian shepherds, my mom and I, and so competed with Aussies um in agility and confirmation. And so I've been doing stuff with dogs for a while, but um obviously that the dog stuff kind of t- was on the back burner for a while with soccer. And um yeah, so after the soccer career came to an untimely end, I just thought, you know, why not? Why not at least just kind of get my foot in the door and see what it's all about and actually, you know, work with some 
pretty competitive athletes. And I spent a year up here, um, knew nothing or nobody, um, just sent out a few emails and um, just said, hey, wanted to learn. Um, so I handled for somebody for a year and really loved it and decided that Iditarod was something that I could set as a goal and start working towards. And that's in a nutshell how I came to Alaska. Awesome. That's pretty badass. Mm -hmm. um, Thanks. <laughs> and like, so Jeff King was just someone that you decided to contact. Was that someone that like, once no. you got to Alaska, like how, what you led know, you to the, get to, to Jeff King, you know? The, how I ended up with Jeff King is actually kind of funny. And I'm not even sure he knows this, but I actually avoided big name mushers when I first came to Alaska. I did not contact you know, anybody who is finishing, you know, up there in the top five and whatnot, not that you wouldn't want to learn from somebody from the best, but um, having grown up with some professional athletes in my own family and understanding, you know, some of the different pressures and things that come with that, not that I don't mind it, but I wanted to just be able to learn in an environment um, where that was not a thing to some degree and was literally just there for the dogs um wasn't really interested as far as who I worked for at the time but I wasn't really interested in working for big name mushers so I actually got connected to Jeff through um Sean's previous girlfriend Kaylin I was driving boats in Grand Teton National Park and um, I was a boat captain at Jenny Lake in the summer um, and then was doing the dog thing in the winter to try to save up for I did run and she worked for the park service. And so I'd drive her across the lake almost every day. And it took us two summers to kind of put together what we did in the winter. And one day she just says, so what do you do in the wintertime? And I said, oh, I run dogs in the interior, like in Cantwell, Alaska, this tiny little town. And she kind of looked at me. And she was like, what? My boyfriend works for Jeff King. And so I actually came up to Jeff's Thanksgiving party uh, that year in 2019 and kind of jumped ship. And the rest is history. So yeah. here we are. <laughs> Small world. Yeah, we're earning a very dogs. small we're world. We're on dogs too. And we're living in a community. We were both living in a communities. We were both working for dog people. And mm -hmm. we both lived in a community of like 200 people that was. And never knew each other. Never knew each other. <laughs> and we were 20 miles away from one another. And Kaylin and Amanda had, were friends from all the way down in Grand Teton National Park. And it's uh, crazy. And then, yeah, you you know uh when, that was my I did or odd year I believe right that you came and yes it was you know, yeah fall so of 2019 winter 2020 yep mm -hmm. and then I but I but like I it was no, you know November I'm training for the quest 300 mm -hmm. and now you get you know this badass group of like people working with me and there was we had like a huge squad and it uh, was yeah it was uh and it was all to get jeff ready for i did our 2020 and then i, I mm -hmm. you know, got the call that he had that issue and uh, i remember the day you got that call we were giving a tour and uh <laughs> yeah i remember you hand you handled that incredibly well yeah i get that call like hey man can you run the idea out in four days and then i like at the end of the call i like click and then like yeah you we're gonna run this winter tour and we've like never done winter tours we had like zero setup it yeah was just like, yeah just <laughs> we're just winging it people. we're winging it yeah we don't have like any like <laughs> tour sleds that are comfortable to use or a trail that's like safe for someone that's never done this and we just like go out there and I'm some like it was like a total circus and I'm sitting here like I could give two shits about this tour right now <laughs> <laughs> dude I'm about to run the fucking I did ride in four days 
and uh and so, yeah that was that was a very weird 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 time and uh <laughs> I'm thankful that you were around it I, like I, my brain was so I don't even remember I know that you were helping me so much like I don't even remember all the little things that everyone did for me because I was just like oh my god what is happening right now it's it's fair I mean in a lot of ways though now having done I did a rod myself um you know the logistics and whatnot when you don't have a large crew to do all those little things and you're kind of doing it yourself is yeah, I, I mean I kind of I kind of wish I had only had three days notice to run yes. the Iditarod quite frankly um leading up to that point you know it, it was such a relief to just get to the starting line and be like okay everything else is done it's all done and yep everything else we know how to do so now now is the not to say the easy part but yeah the, the logistical vacation. the logistical planning and all the packing and the prep was whew, was a nightmare it, it is truly so. i think uh we hear a lot of people say this that yeah. it, for any sled dog race that's you know 300 mm -hmm. plus miles or especially the Iditarod and the quest that are thousand miles of dog food and gear and human food and all the training and preparation and logistical nightmares that get you just to the start line is in some ways it's almost more of an accomplishment just to get to the damn start line i then, i would totally agree and then like you know <laughs> if, if like getting if it goes from like learning how to mush to finishing the iditarod you know getting to the start line would be going from zero percent to 98 percent and then getting from the start line to the finish line is just that extra two percent of like total time and, and yeah it's a hard freaking maybe it's really hard two percent and you probably yeah. had some difficult times in those two percent but yeah oh yeah it's it's in a it's a tough just to get to that start line and it feels so good to pull the hook and get out on the trail and and be like, all right, well, uh, if I forgot something, it doesn't matter. Too late I'm, now. Yeah, too late <laughs> it now. It doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. It does not matter anymore. Yeah, uh, I definitely. I was thinking, we were looking at your Iditarod and like, I don't know, most of the races that you've ran in your past, um, were what were your like goals going into the Willow 300, the Copper Basin 300, the Iditarod? Mm -hmm. You know, these mm. the biggest races, those are the three biggest races you've done it, right? And and uh, yeah. Um what were your goals like going into them, considering it was your rookie year for all those races, but you still had a fair amount yeah. of experience too, and obviously a, like a pretty sick mm -hmm. I did, yeah. Um so the goal and you know, again going back to um I guess I've never really felt the pressure of oh my gosh, you know, people come up to me at races and you're running Jeff King's dogs and it's, Dude. it's an honor. And it's, you know, I'm really blessed to be able to get to do that. Um, getting my qualifiers done that, you know, we'll start with Copper Basin. Copper Basin was my first 300 mile race, first qualifier. And the goal was just to finish um, pretty much the entire team with the exception of four were all rookies themselves. And uh, I finished with all 12, which was awesome. You know, they looked fabulous at the finish line. Um, all things considering, you know, even taking a fairly, I wouldn't say a leisurely pace, but still um, not necessarily trying to compete, you know, we still finished 12th. And had I not busted my sled, I think we would have finished in the top 10, actually. Um, so it was, you know, that was a huge accomplishment for me just to get those dogs to the finish line looking as they did. Um, and so that was kind of the goal for all the qualifiers. The Willow 300, um, 
was a little bit of a gamble. Um, I, I essentially knocked out all of my Iditarod qualifiers in one season. And for the Willow, I was borrowing dogs. I had a um, bunch of yearlings and uh, no veterans whatsoever. And that was, I think I probably learned a lot. Um, I would say maybe even more so um, from that Willow 300 qualifier than the Copper Basin, because th I think that was a point for me as a musher where you really kind of get to see what the dogs are capable of doing, regardless of whether or not they've done it in training. And we did not finish high, you know, whatsoever, but by all accounts with the squad that we had, um, you know, I really don't think we should have finished at all, um, which I think was a testament to you really need to base whatever your game plan might be off of what's in front of you right in that moment, not necessarily what the dogs, you know, have done prior or not done prior. Um, several of them, I didn't know from Adam, I picked him up from Jesse Holmes on my way down to the race <laughs> and, uh, you know, finished with 10 of the 12. And again, that was just the goal was just to finish, not compete. Um, this season, you know, and for Iditarod, uh, I guess I shouldn't skip over Iditarod. Um, obviously Iditarod was a little bit crazy having, um, Jeff also running it, you know, three days prior getting that call from Nick and, uh, was still really cool to be able to drive, you know, the Husky Homestead team and kind of got derailed. You know, I was planning on having a little bit more of a um, competitive pace that we ended up running and my guys got really sick. A bunch of teams got the bug and right off the bat, I could tell that my guys were not feeling well and, you know, to the outside eye when they don't know your dogs, um, you know, still looks like a great dog team. And I thought they were still looking great myself, but they're at 75% capacity. So we backed way off of what my original kind of race plan, if you will, was, and just lots of water, lots of rest, and we got over it. And uh, so that was, um, you know, Iditarod was definitely not without its challenges. I think if anything's gonna break, it's gonna happen on the Iditarod. <laughs> uh, I went through three headlamps on the Iditarod. That was special. Yeah. My main, yeah, my main race lamp went out on the first run <laughs> to Squintna. <laughs> it was one of those like it had been on for 20 minutes and then it just gone. And I thought, okay. So it was immediately using the spare, you know, both lupines, so both really great lamps and lost the spare on the last step going down the happy river steps um i scraped something and didn't realize that it had <laughs> come off my oh, head and i was like two miles away and then went to turn it on you know and did one of these like oh my gosh are you kidding me right now and uh ironically uh, yeah did the gorge in the dark um oh, that was special you have like yeah. a full moon at least or something or like what's that you have like some a full moon or some aurora or i had um i had left what is it? I left the previous checkpoint. Um, rainy pass. So I guess it was rainy pass and was just getting, um, I guess it was like kind of dawn, dusky light as I got to the bottom of the gorge. <laughs> so definitely did the harder, you know, the harder part in the dark, but honestly, um, you know, we amazingly made it through without incident. And that was, that was great. Um, Lisbeth Norris actually found my gear, Martin Boozer's gear and a bunch of other people's stuff at the bottom of that last step. And so when she was, uh, she got into Roan and I was already gone at that point. And um, Lisa had flown out to see me oh. um, in Roan and she was there and Lisbeth had the light and it had my initials on it. And Lisa recognized it and she grabbed it and sent it to me. And I got it while I was on my 24 in McGrath. So I did not have to do nice. <laughs> the rest of the Iditarod in the dark, which was great. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I was just thinking about headlamps and like how. Yeah. Did you use headlamps at all, like in Idaho? You know, just in life in general. Just you know, like little yeah, like little battery power. You know, little double yeah. A powered. Not like, something I never, could see to the front of twelve dogs. Certainly right, not. Right. It was like I was just never on the menu for me. You know, using a headlamp. Yeah. Up, you know, we yeah. oh, if the lights go out, we use our like two dollar flashlight. Yeah. And, <laughs> And I was just watching this show called Kaleidoscope on Netflix. It's like a bank mm-hmm. heist show. And it's starring that guy from Breaking Bad that owns the chicken, the chicken, you know, restaurant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's like breaking into a safe and he has a flashlight mm-hmm. in his mouth. And he's just like biting onto the flashlight as he's like cracking the safe. And I'm like, bro. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> they have a fucking headlamps now. You know that, right? And and so now I just kind of like now I just don't understand in what situation is it better to use a handheld flashlight versus a hands-free you know headlamp and now I you know I just thought that was like dude you could probably use a headlamp and you'd be having a lot easier time I do think of that nowadays you know when you're watching movies and whatnot and you see that you think oh need a headlamp (laughs) need a headlamp Um, but yeah so i'll just yeah wrap up the iditarod deal but very obviously really really pleased with the dogs finish given um you know they kind of got over the bug about halfway through the race and so at that point you could kind of just breathe and not have to worry about that and um really found their stride and finished with 11 of the 14 and that was um a really fun accomplishment for me, especially um, one dog in particular, uh, Patience. I don't know if you remember her. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, and that was a dog that I took, you know, a lot of pride in getting that dog to the finish line because she's such a hard charger. You know, I mean, she had trouble finishing 300 mile races, not because she isn't a great athlete, but she just has a tendency to burn out because she just works so hard. And so I think um, the most memorable moment for me was definitely going through the blowhole and across the finish line with her in lead, uh, no yeah. less. And that was, yeah, she was very fabulous dog that, um, I think really found her stride on the Iditarod. So that was definitely one of the cooler transformations, um, that I've witnessed while running dogs. So that was fun. And, um, this year I, yeah, still at Husky Homestead. And the goal this year was to, you know, now that we've you know, got the Iditarod under our belt was to actually be competitive in the races that we entered. So, um, won the Solstice 50 with a bunch of young dogs. So that was a lot of fun and a little bummed. We didn't make it to the Copper Basin, uh, this last week, but looking forward to the quest. And I think we're going to be at this rate, at least very well rested, having not done any 300s prior to the 550. So, so can you tell us a little bit more about this caribou mishap that happened? <laughs> oh yes the caribou you know <laughs> wrong place wrong time is kind of all there is to it but yeah I was just south of Cantwell it's about 6 30 in the morning and I'd just gone over this really rough section of road there's a pretty dicey section right as you pass through Cantwell heading south and so I'd you know it was going pretty slow 40 miles an hour and they came darting into the road just with no warning and pumped the brakes but just slid right into the last caribou that crossed the road which was kind of just demoralizing (laughs) to some degree a little humiliating you know you're like oh go 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 and the other one's all run in front of the truck and we hit the last one 
Um, very thankful, all things considering that it wasn't worse. Um, truck was actually still drivable, so I was able to flip a UE and take the dogs home, you know, drive them 30 minutes back north. Uh, the radiator was definitely pushing up against the engine, though, so I wasn't comfortable driving it to Glen Allen like that. And uh, so priority was keeping the dogs safe, getting them home, and um, figuring out the truck situation after. Um, really cool community, though. A lot of people reaching out. It just didn't quite work logistically um, to borrow another truck to get down to the race. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, the quest was the goal for this year. And um, technically, actually, Copper Basin was supposed to be Jeff's race this year. He signed up for that and um, ended up going to Mexico. So I was actually kind of replacing him. <laughs> and if I had, you know, obviously still needed a qualifier or something, I think we could have, you know, made the push to figure out something uh, to get down there. But yeah, yeah caribou uh caribou is <laughs> not a good thing back to the uh so. conversation of it's an accomplishment to get to the start line yeah and, you know there's a perfect <laughs> there's a perfect argument yeah. for that statement is yeah you know you got to make a six hour or what is it i don't know yeah six hour drive yeah it's like six and a half six and a half seven hours if i'm and, if i'm driving it's more of a seven hour drive because i drive like a grandma and still <laughs> hit caribou apparently <laughs> Oh gosh, yeah. So, yeah. So, I also wanted to hit on that you mentioned that in your first Iditarod, how, or in the Iditarod, how um, your dogs caught a bug. And Mm -hmm. if I recall, like you, you, in addition to uh, quite a few others, were dealing with that issue. Um, Mm -hmm. For me, being someone who doesn't have too much uh, experience in dog sled racing and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, like, how does that happen? And, like, I'm just curious, like, more about that. No, absolutely. It's, uh, I think, pretty common, kind of like a stomach bug or a common cold, you know, in people you go from not seeing a bunch of people, let's say you live remotely and you go on a trip and go through the airport, you know, or catching COVID. uh knock on wood and uh very similar in the sport of dog mushing um you know if you camp on somebody else's straw you know you if you poach somebody's straw you know you risk um potentially picking up whatever their dogs had to some degree and i'm not particularly particularly sure how we got it um one of the two main types of meat that i packed for the race did spoil um and i wonder if that might have had something to do it that was another added deal for my Iditarod I was kind of pilfering the front runners drop bags all the way to know wow. and uh yeah made for some extra logistical challenges but we made it work and um one of the things that I have learned from Jeff over the years probably one of the more important ones is the importance of clear water um you know a lot of people will make kind of a soupy mix for their dogs um just to kind of get that extra hydration in and we're really big on making sure they have access to clear water all the time um one thing that I always have in my sled is an insulated jug that's full of water and it's for the dogs not me and uh, I have my own water obviously but um getting them clear water on a regular basis is so important and I think that really helped flush out whatever it was that was in their system and uh, I think that was a you know backing off again backing off that original race plan giving them a little more rest making sure everybody stayed hydrated um, I think is what helped us overcome that for sure wow and that and you said that Mm -hmm. took till about halfway into the race yeah I think the dogs really found their stride um, after that run to cripple 
And in fact, I did that run from over to cripple all the way through. Um, at that point, I could tell the dogs were getting over it. Um, you know, we took a couple of snack and water breaks along the way. Um, but we did that, I think it's like, what, 88 miles, something like that. And uh, it was a nice, hard, fast trail for me. I know it was a little bit of a slog for some of the front runners, but it had um, temperature had dropped just enough that it was nice, fast trail and dogs were looking good. And you can tell, you know, when they're kind of finding their stride and whatnot. And um, definitely leaving Cripple, I think we were over the bug at that point. So nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and then you also mentioned how, uh, you know, the Nick, the Nick handoff to Jeff because of COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was just kind of curious, like behind the scenes, you know, like at Husky Homestead, they're getting ready to send you off. Right. Yep. And then mm -hmm. he gets a call a couple of days beforehand. And now mm -hmm. he's you've been probably doing almost all the work, if not all of it. Right. So I'm just curious, like what was going on behind the scenes when that like or were you just kind of like you're you're about to run your your first Iditarod. You're not really too worried or concerned about that. Just... I you know, I congratulated him and just said, wow, you cool, I think is what I said in a nutshell. Um, I had just come back from a training run on the highway, just a easy 50 out to Brush Cannon back. And he had actually joined me um, a handful of times that winter because the moose were so bad. You know, snow was so deep that we kind of needed somebody every once in a while to shag the moose out of the road on the snow machine. Um, so he was actually there um, with me when he got that call. And so I was standing there unbooting dogs when he got it. And he said, I think I'm running the Iditarod. And I didn't respond at first and then he said it again and I said cool and you know it's actually for him I thought it was really neat um kind of come full circle given his you know last time he ran the Iditarod and Sean uh, ended up running for him instead um you know tables kind of flipped and this time he got the three exactly. days notice that said hey you want to borrow my dog team so I was actually really happy for him and that was cool and you know it was actually kind of fun we started um traveling together officially like three quarters of the way into the race we had a very similar run rest schedule at that point and that is the most mushing I've ever done with him you know I can count on one hand the times I've got to go mushing with Jeff King pre-Iditarod um, and that was a lot of fun to be traveling with him in a race and so I thought that ended up re being really cool for the both of us that's awesome that's awesome yeah. uh, I remember when you finished how uh, Jeff was right behind you and then like Sean and I were getting ready for the podcast and we were looking at the order. I'm like, dude, Amanda finished between two fucking badass icons from in, yeah, in Mark perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I leapfrogged with him a bunch as well. And um yeah, it was really cool to watch the two of them on the trail and nice. The uh yeah. the I, one story I had was when I, I went to the start line of your I did a rod at the restart and I um, mm -hmm. snow machined out a couple of miles up the trail. So we were just kind of alone on the side of the trail and mm -hmm. uh, Jeff mushed by us. And I was just like, I don't even know, like, well, I, I haven't talked to him much since I uh, worked there and, and uh, he passed me and I was just like made, I was like, tick, tick off, you know, every, anything on my head. So he could at least like see <laughs> me, you know, uh -huh. he just like mushed along. He's like, Oh yeah, another couple. And then he was like, it kind of, kind of <laughs> rubbed his eyes. He's like, "Oh, it's Sean." You know, I could see the, like the light bulb going off. And then mm -hmm. he just like took a deep breath, and he, he the only thing he said to me were two words: "My turn." 
<laughs> and uh he's like yeah my turn and i was like all right yeah that's that's good it's good for you man um, he is he is good on the spot yeah that was pretty good <laughs> and uh yeah i mean he said that during the race that you know he probably this was probably the only circumstance in which he would have ended up running the race is like it's the last minute mm-hmm. of that that you can you know he doesn't I think part of part of the reason, and you you maybe you can add to this, it's probably because you know the prep is so much, you know, mm-hmm. to be able to just kind of hop on the runners at the beginning of the race, that takes away all the stress of the preparation for the race, and he can right, and and he's got mm-hmm. got thirty forty years of mushing experience to draw on, so you can't just be yeah. any Joe Schmo and get on the hop on the sled, mm-hmm. you know, someone like Christian Turner this year. He's he's run, mm-hmm. you know, he has a fraction of Jeff's experience, but he's still got a sh- bunch of experience, you know, working for yeah. Dallas. And now he's running Mitch's dogs. And, you know, when you have Iditarods under your belt and you, you, you know, dogs are dogs at the end of the day. There's differences yeah. between different dog teams, but the same basic foundation of, of how to care for a dog team and manage them well. So, you know, exactly. Cool. Yep people criticize hopping on the runners or whatever and not like mm-hmm. working with your team. Look, if you work with your team when mm-hmm. they're puppies all the way to when they run the Iditarod, mm-hmm. you're happy. You're at a, you're, yeah. you have a better connection with them. There's no doubt about it, but mm-hmm. if you hop on the runners doesn't mean you're like doomed for failure. or That's like messed up. They're like a lot of these dogs are so they get trained by so many people that they're like, they look back and they're like, yeah, it doesn't really matter who's back there. And yeah, you know, maybe with, I don't know, Nick seems to be doing most of the training for his dogs, but I'm sure mm-hmm. there was like a few days where they were looking back at Jeff, like, who is this clown? Yeah, whatever. We'll just, keep, <laughs> we'll just keep running. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you definitely do have probably more of a competitive advantage. Um, I think knowing your dogs at that intimate level, but you're absolutely right. You know, running dogs is running dogs and there are certain things that, you know, to look for and to watch for you know I borrowed a team that I didn't know from Adam for my last qualifier for the Alpine 200 and you know uh, another really valuable lesson I've learned from Jeff over the years is if you run them the right speed they can go forever (laughs) to some degree you know in a nutshell Um, but again it's figuring out what looks comfortable what looks easy for that particular dog team and even if you don't know the dog really well you can kind of tell in their gait, you know, does that look easy for the dog? No. Okay. Maybe we slow down a little bit or speed up, you know, making your adjustment off of what looks good for those dogs. Yeah. I, uh, this is a non sequitur, but have you I love non sequiturs. <laughs> have you been playing, uh, any soccer lately? I have not. I, I make a, once a month or so more like once every three month appearance at the indoor league up in Healy nice yeah I I'm now that I've moved down so like you know Brennan in 20 miles from where Jeff's place is is Healy and um they have like pickup soccer indoors in the gymnasium at the local elementary school and I would go there and like I'm not that good at soccer but I would be probably one of the, like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not bad at soccer. I'm definitely, and I'd be one of the, you know, maybe it's like an older crowd or, you know, a lot of people just want to run around and it doesn't even matter if they've played soccer before or not. So they just, exactly. kind of, we're just kind of running around out there. 
So, you know, I was pretty, pretty decent for that group. And then I went down to Anchorage and my friend hit me up and this is <laughs> much at all, but my friend hit me up and was like, uh, Hey Sean, I, I heard that you play soccer from, you know, through a friend or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I like I play soccer, you know, like I also, you know, can say two words in Latin too. It doesn't mean I'm like fluent. <laughs> and, uh, and so I show up to the soccer league and it's like, like a referee, you know, we're all wearing the white shirt, like a white shirts. And I like hop on zero warm up, full speed, six on six. And everyone there like clearly played at least varsity soccer in high school, if not like for some kind of smaller college or something. So everybody was like really freaking good. And I yeah. was, I may or may not have had two beers earlier before the game. So, you know, not doing well. Also haven't Pre-game run, hype. you know, haven't run in a while as well. So, you know, we're uphill battle here. And anyways, suffice to say, as I've always considered myself to be a pretty good athlete, but this is kind of one of the first times I've stepped down the field and felt completely inadequate. And, uh, and I was trying to be like, hey, you know, sorry, guys, like that goal was my bad or whatever. And like they just like wouldn't even look at me, my teammates. Oh, no. And I was like, well, thanks, guys, for letting me play at the end of the week. Anyway, so then to fast forward this last Monday. And I get a text from my buddy who invited me to play. And he was like, hey, man, the team doesn't want you to show up this week. They're, we don't want you on the team anymore. And I was like, oh, my God, this is way different than Healy vibes. So I miss pickup soccer in Healy, I guess is the, the just yeah, the, yeah. In shape and soccer shape are, are definitely two different, two different things for sure. It's uh, <laughs> in a bigger pool of I I have experienced similar, yeah. Yeah. How's that knee feeling when you go out and get out and play? You know, I uh, I really have not played on it much since um, everything has been replaced and fixed in there. But all things considering, it's not bad. And really, the only time I feel it mushing if it's, is if it's pretty cold out, you know, 40 below, something like that. Um, I do have a couple metal plates in there. So, it, you know, depending on the temperature, it gets a little cold. But all things considering, pretty good. Nice. Feels stable. <laughs> that's That's always good. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that'll, uh, as you continue to age, if how that will continue to treat you. <laughs> yeah, right. I feel like I'm going to turn 30 and it's going to go downhill. Well, you know, as the uh, older brother here, I can tell you firsthand that, you know, once you turn that corner, it's 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 very slippery after that. Dude, yeah, you don't want me and, me and Brennan, we're way older. We're we're old parts. You, you, you're still having share, share your wisdom with me. Impart your wisdom with me. <laughs> uh, well, you gotta, you, you gotta warm up. Like at some point, you're gonna get to an age where, like, you gotta slightly do something before you just start an activity. Um, that's really important, and and I think that's probably yeah. the, the number one thing. So, um, so. Kind of getting back to you were talking about how you finished that Iditarod last year and mm-hmm. like sounds like last year you were like, all right, I just want to finish. And so mm-hmm. uh getting into this year's season, you you were like, All right, I want to be more competitive. What went into the decisions to run the Copper Basin and the Quest as opposed to others? 
Yeah. So um, Jeff actually signed up for the Copper Basin. Um, so I was not planning on doing that race. I was planning on handling. Um, the only race I had planned on running was the Yukon Quest and then that Solstice 50 race that I took some of the younger dogs to and we came away with the W, which was awesome for them. The Copper Basin, obviously, I would have loved to compete at that. And I think we had the team to do it. I was ready to do it, you know, when Jeff decided that he wanted to go to Mexico. Um, as Of all the mid-distance races I've done, I love the Copper Basin. I do think it is my favorite. I'm actually really bummed we didn't make it to the start line, but so be it. As far as the Yukon Quest, um, I would have loved to do Iditarod again, actually. And I just didn't feel like we had the depth this year. You know, we retired and sold some dogs. I really only have 13 race age adults, and then I've got six yearlings. And I felt like half the distance um, in the quest with doing a 550-mile event, still a tough trail. It's going to be a tough race. But I thought as far as the training would go in November and December, that was something that we could collectively train for as a group and not be sectioning out the yearlings from the race dogs. You know, that was something I could still have the yearlings in the rotation for and getting them, you know, some good miles, some good training under their belt. We do like them to be two before they do the Iditarod. And I have a couple of the yearlings. I think they will be two end of March. And so they're kind of right on that cusp of not quite being yearlings. Um, but I think just for collectively as a team, this was something that we could succeed with as a whole. And I'm big on, you know, whether it's training or racing, you know, honestly, racing is kind of a byproduct for me. I really enjoy the training. I love taking a young group of dogs and trying them out in different things and seeing what they can do and really coaching them. I love training in small groups, uh, you know, six and eight dog teams. I think um, it makes a stronger, more cohesive unit. Obviously we do longer stuff with bigger teams on the highway. But um, I really, one of the things that I always try to ask myself, you know, before I even put a harness on a dog is how can I set this dog up for success? And that is what kind of drives my training program, whatever it is for that day, that week, that month. And I just felt that the quest would maybe be something that would be better for our team as a group and each dog individually than signing up for I Did Her Out again. It's so never the have... dog's fault, right? It's always, it's always, it's always the dog's fault. Sean, you were taking, <laughs> Sean, you were taking notes there. You were Get taking it. notes on. Oh no, I was just saying, set, setting them up for success is like, there's yeah. a lot of, uh, there's a lot of phrases that Amanda and I have probably, you know, used in our uh, mushing, you know, that that may or may not have come from Jeff or just circulated through like Husky mm -hmm. Homestead, you know, mm -hmm. hallways where. You know, so I don't know, yeah. maybe it was Alex or maybe, I don't know, I've just heard the setting up for mm. success, you know, that's just a, mm. a great thing, you know, you don't want to ask the dog to, yeah, you don't want to, if you ask a dog to be a lead dog and they're like, dude, what mm -hmm. the hell is going on right now? And they've never yeah. been on the trail before and they've never been in yeah. lead. Well, you're probably going to set them up mm -hmm. for failure. But if you're like, hey, you've never run lead before, mm -hmm. this is a run that we've done yeah. 11 times in the last yeah. two weeks. Why don't you just yeah. run up and lead? It's not like it takes that much brain mm -hmm. power to do the same exact route, you know, something like right. that, you mm -hmm. know. Um, well, go ahead. And that's, and that's where I'd say, you know, knowing your dogs at the individual level is how you can set your team up for success as a whole. I think a lot of people talk, a lot of mushers talk about, oh, you know, what our dogs do well, what do they not do well? That's actually something that I probably focus on maybe a little too much sometimes, and but I think in the long run, though, it does set the team up for success as a whole, because you can't set your dog at an individual level up for success if you don't know what his weaknesses are. 
And, you know, there's, I think there's a fine line of balancing um, both shielding the dog from that weakness and also, you know, um, helping them overcome that. And I think that kind of all goes into that, you know, dog musher relationship, um, both on the trail and in the yard. Yeah. Like you have those dogs, you know, and, and I'm me and Amanda, this is, it's great. Cause we have the same, <laughs> we come from the same place in a lot of ways and you've run a lot of the dogs that I've run and you a lot yeah. of dogs I haven't as well, but, um, just like, you know, a dog, like there's some dogs that, for example, when you see water on the trail, um, mm -hmm. in this winter, it's even typically a little more intimidating for a dog to see water on the trail versus in the fall when there's puddles everywhere and it's 40 mm -hmm. degrees, you're going to see puddles and they don't really, most of the dogs are do okay with in, in the fall, but you know, yeah, mm -hmm. like there's a fine line, but like getting, working with the dog to like, not be scared of a little bit of water. You know, it's like some dogs, they see like an inch of water and they're like, well, I don't got to get my tootsies wet. I just got my nails done. And, you know, Ruben. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of, you know. So, Seems yeah, you don't want to. up front when you're exploring the yander and you don't want to go into anything that might be deeper than overflow because she will do anything within her power to not get wet. <laughs> so when you're exploring territory that you don't know on the river, I always have her and uh, this other dog muscle up front. It's great. And we just around um, nice. all the open yeah, water a, yeah that's a yeah. cool thing right you, using the strengths and the weaknesses advantage. for different things yeah exactly right. so and then there's like you know a perfectly good little there's just a little tiny bit of water it's in the middle of the trail and then you, you just run through it it's not a big deal and she'll take you off mm -hmm. into like like 12 inches of fresh snow and the team's all wallowing through the <laughs> snow and she's just like well, I don't want to get wet you know so there's a fine line between you know, yeah. using that to your advantage, maybe like, you mm -hmm. know, in hindsight, you could blame me for not having exposed her a little bit better <laughs> to, uh, yeah, puddles, yeah. you know, yeah, don't, you're supposed to say like, no, Sean, it's fine. But you're just like, yeah, it is your fault. <laughs> <laughs> no, that whole, and it's, you know, it's different, you know, it's different every year though. And that's the thing. And actually, I think kind of the generation of dogs that you were working with, well, you were at the kennel not too long ago, so you got to see a few of them, but most of those guys are, you know, gone. Ruben's kind of the last of that, that generation. And so it is a new crowd. And I think in the, this is now my fourth year being here at Husky Homestead and every winter, every summer, you know, it's a new, even if it is the same dogs, it's, it's a new season, it's a new start. And I've had a few dogs who were, you know, good or not as good at certain things the season prior. And then the next season, because we either exposed them to certain things or didn't expose them to certain things, totally different dog. And it's, um, that is, I think one of the things I love about mushing is there's always nothing with dogs is linear. I'm sure that's another phrase that has circulated around Husky Homestead, but it's so true, you know, just because they haven't done something once or they have done something once doesn't mean they will or will not do it again. And that's been a fun aspect for me as a trainer. Um, just to kind of work through some of those things so i'm looking at the yukon quest yeah we had we had eddie burke on uh our on a previous podcast i he listened was, yeah he was talking about eddie the, coming in hot yeah he was talking about the course for the quest and he mm -hmm. kind of was alluding to again for me I don't know much about these courses and such, but mm -hmm. based on what he said, he was saying, well, this could be actually one of the more difficult races, if not the d difficult race of the season. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, like, you know, new terrain, uh, 550 is still a long distance. Um, still you know, a long where, where, where's your head at going into the race? 
you know, one mile at a time, one run at a time. Um, traveling well with dogs, you know, the next four hours is kind of the way I, I think about it. Um, they did reroute the trail, so we're no longer doing the traditional route to Eagle and then deviating down to Chicken and Toke. They're going to send us uh, to Central. We'll turn around and follow that same trail all the way back to Two Rivers. Then they're going to send us to North Pole and Nanana, and we'll finish in Fairbanks and yeah, so I think there's definitely some pros and cons to the way they've rerouted the trail. Um, you know, obviously, we're going to go up and over both Eagle Summit and Rosebud twice now. Um, it's an interesting mandatory rest. Uh, it's uh, only 14. So it's definitely you need to be able to manage your dog team well um, if you want to have them finish well, I should say, at the finish line. I don't know necessarily, I guess going into races, you know, even races where I've wanted to be more competitive, I don't necessarily think about certain aspects of the trail in that light. Like, oh my gosh, is this going to affect me? You know, the reality is you kind of have to take it in stride. So um, again, when I'm entering a race, you know, whether it's the quest or the Iditarod or the Copper Basin, you know, there are certain aspects that I might think about as far as strategy, you know, oh, it might be better to rest the dogs this much here versus there but the reality is you have to go with what's in front of you I think any good musher is gonna say you know yeah we have some kind of skeletal outline of a plan going into the race but the reality is you might have to change that plan based on what your dogs look like in that particular run and or what the trail conditions are so you have to be able to be flexible and adaptable and do you have like expectations for the race like I think we discussed 15 are in the race so like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. are you trying to do anything about, with that or you know like we kind of talked about like the mentality of racing and mm -hmm. trying to compete versus racing to get to the finish line you know? exactly like, what do you have expectations with that you know I have a dog team that I think could get it done and I, again, I think I would probably be the weak link, if you will, in that factor. So I think a lot of that is going to depend on how I manage that team, uh, especially during the first half of the race, I think is going to kind of dictate how the rest of it goes. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I want to go out there, I want to run dogs, um, run them to the best of their ability and my ability, and we'll see. Yeah, the you know that was another thing that you know you hear not necessarily just at the homestead but just anywhere in mushing it's like yeah you know you run your dog team and you don't want to be you've seen a lot of people kind of lose their race because they're mm -hmm. too worried about well the guy behind me he decided to do this and that means that i should do that yeah. and mm -hmm. it's like no you gotta like pick what's good for your team and you know maybe mm -hmm. you can base five percent of your decision on what the person behind you or in front of you did but ultimately, you know, you can't push a rope. And if you want right. you know, them to mm -hmm. perform at the best of their ability, you know, even if it means, look, I'm, I, the, these guys are pulling off this move right behind me. They're going to pass me. Look, I just don't think that I need to, I'm not going to change my adjust. And if it means I get third instead of first, that's fine. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then like, when you go into the beginning yeah. of a race, like, that with the Iditarod, you know, we talked to Riley and it hasn't been out yet, but, uh, but mm -hmm. you know, he's saying that you break it up into thirds. And I always think like that first third is like a lot of mushers kind of, you know, have decided 24 hours before the start line, like this is what, how I'm going to get to my 24. 
and barring some kind of like weather change stomach bug to hit your dog team like they a lot of times stick to that and then you kind of wing it and have plans a through x Mm -hmm. for the rest of the race and Mm -hmm. you know so yeah going in those like you don't know what the weather's going to be we're still two weeks out it could be you know the cusco next week they have the seven day forecast for that high of 34 low of 27 (laughs) i saw that yeah that's gonna suck it's gonna be super i mean like it's not gonna suck but like it's It's gonna be a slow trail probably a lot of overflow if at that temperature i'm guessing and uh you know so yeah you don't you can't get you can't tell me what your first you know couple runs are going to look like now but Mm -hmm. scheme in a couple of different um run rest schedules and that's fun i like having less rest mandatory because Uh then it gives you you more room to play and mm -hmm. and you can and what six hours at the last checkpoint and then eight hours Mm -hmm. between the rest so that's i mean like i you know there's there's an argument for both ways because copper basin 18 hours Mm -hmm. of mandatory Mm -hmm. rest for a 300 mile race not Mm -hmm. no one competing in that race is camping yeah and Mm -hmm. uh then you have a race like the you know quest 550 with only 14 hours of rest and Mm -hmm. and 250 miles longer than the copper basin and four hours less of rest so now Mm -hmm. you know it it instead of having to design your race around the race rules you know no one can no one's going to be able to just do 14 hours of rest you know that's what i love Mm -hmm. about the iditarod too you got yeah like barely any mandatory rest you got a 24 hour rest and you're going to rest five times more than they ask you to or whatever and that's Mm -hmm. you know that just that means that you know you're not restricted to oh well it's this much distance between the checkpoints i guess we're running 68 miles straight yeah now you you can break it up and you can run 40 here and 40 there and or whatever exactly exactly yeah and um i was thinking about that a lot that last night as well and i did the 200 version last year just to solidify my roster for the iditarod and that was actually a race where you know again just race into finish and you know but still give a good showing and be semi-competitive and i think it's never necessarily a bad move to give them enough rest early on in the race you know we finished we still finished fourth you know just taking it easy and again looking at the dogs and there's definitely having done that first 200 miles there's definitely some things I probably would have would have done differently um and going into this race will definitely take that into account but it's um yeah I'm looking forward to it I think it's going to be a really great race it's a great field of mushers um as of right now and I think it's going to be a really good test for these guys I'm I'm really excited to kind of put into practice that we've been working on and I almost in some ways feel like we've trained harder this fall at least than we did for Iditarod and uh, it is really cool when you've trained dogs in smaller teams to kind of hook them up all together and they're borderline scary at that point (laughs) and uh, it's but it's a great problem to have you know it's such a good feeling when you get you know you're 14 you're 16 whatever it is all together and you're watching them you know, send it uphill and you just think, oh my gosh, like we've put in the effort and it's time to go play. Yeah. I have to like looking at this trail. You firstly, before I look at the trail, when you say you train them in small teams versus big teams, you know, a dog that's inexperienced and is on a six dog team, 
versus a 12 dog team. All right, let's say you put a dog in that's kind of learning the ropes, not really unsure of him or herself. You put him in a 12 dog team and they can they can totally be in la la land, not really present and not pulling and smelling mm-hmm. the roses on the side of the trail. <laughs> and it doesn't really matter. You're still going to travel the same speed because you have 11 other dogs pulling. And yeah. then you have six dog team and one sixth of that team isn't working there's a big difference so that you know they can feel that the rest of the team can feel that you can feel that and so you you really can work with the dogs a lot closer you can stop the team really easily with six dogs go and encourage Mm -hmm. a dog a great job you did and if you need to turn around in the middle of a tree fell off in the side of the middle of the trail you turn around six dog team in a blink of an eye you can't turn around 12 dogs in the blink of an eye Mm -hmm. uh, depending on the trail um and then speaking of the trail the quest 550 you know basically you start this race and you are you know mushing to two rivers through a trail system they'll be all excited um you i don't know what was it like a hundred and something miles into the race you hit up go up rosebud and then you go up uh eagle summit again and then you go drop down and you could hit birch creek which is like um i don't know how long that run's going to be this year but what, like, I remember it being like 70 miles. Yeah, I think I saw 75. Yeah, so 75 be, yeah. miles mm-hmm. on a creek that winds like, I mean, it has a bunch of horseshoe <laughs> turns. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, Birch Creek is one of those places that I remember hearing Alan Moore, who won the Quest 1000 like three times. He was like, I don't care what the temperature is. I don't care what the forecast is. Birch Creek will be minus 40. So it's like it's always cold there and it's always a mind fuck because you're like you're just like you're you're sitting there yeah. like I think we went 40 miles or maybe we went 60 or maybe we've only gone 10. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know? There's then, a reason it's affectionately known as Bitch Creek. <laughs> <laughs> and and then you can turn around after you're done doing that and uh you do it again. So yep. <laughs> that's gonna be you know 150 miles, right? Two 75 mile runs that mm-hmm. I'm, you know some teams will just do 75 and 75 i'm seeing a lot i'm sure a lot of teams will do 50 50 50 um and then you, then it's it's interesting from a dog's perspective they you know, they're going to be bored on the birch creek you know that and you probably mm-hmm. see some speeds drop and then you know then they're going to get to these epic uphill sections and uphill let's poor word choice up mountain sections and <laughs> You go up these mountains and, you know, they're either going to A, be like, dude, we just, we're not, we're, we, we, you went too fast early on and they're not going to, they're going to be crawling up the, up the hill and kind of just like, you push the damn sled. And then, or you're going to get dogs that I'm sure on the other side of the spectrum are going to be like, oh, sick, a hill. Like, damn, the last 150 miles of flat windy trail was killing me, like very mentally unstimulating. And now you get to these hills and they step right up to the plate and they're stoked to have something like exciting happening going up a freaking mountain. Mm-hmm. It's pretty exciting. So yeah, just like, but my point is, is, you know, you have this 550 mile distance. And so you can't, with a 300 mile race, a lot of times you just kind of empty the tank and you get to the finish line and dogs are ready for a long rest. Well, 550, you can't do that. You, It's too long. So you have to mm-hmm. kind of, calm spend the first couple days managing your team's excitement 
Mm-hmm. And then when then they kind of start to get in the travel mode and, you know, you have to see when and how that happens. And then you can kind of make a move towards the end of the race, you know. Uh, so I'm just yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. Like, I think I think it's in some ways just as exciting as the Iditarod because you have, you know, you with this team that you're going to try and compete. You got Brent Sass running it. You got yeah. Wade Mars showing up from Wisconsin with a lot to prove. And Cody Straith, Nick Petit, Ramey Smith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think he's been in a race yet. Strong names, man. Yeah, that's yeah, it's a, it's a it's a crazy. You got this. Gonna be. I'm stoked. I'm. I think it's gonna be. I'm fun. really excited for this race. It's it's. I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. I'm really excited to see what these dogs do. And I've been waiting all season <laughs> at this point <laughs> to really race. I mean, we had a we had a really fun time at that little. What was it? The Solstice 50. But it's you know this was the end goal and. So I'm excited to see what they, what they put out there and I'm confident in their abilities and I'm, you know, I'm confident in mine and it's just going to be, like you just said, it's, it's going to be um, a game of management, especially early on in the race. Here, hearing so. Sean uh, talk a little bit about going up a hill or a mountain and the dogs looking at you, like if you've emptied the tank too much, they're, they're looking at you like you better push. Um, I'm just curious, you know, What's your style when it comes to like running or or polling or I don't know if I'm even using the right term Mm -hmm. there, but Mm -hmm. like, uh, is that something you're into or do you just kind of like let the dogs do the work? I'm just. Yeah. So in races, um, I probably, I know there's been times where I've helped out a little bit, you know, I, I also enjoy running. So uphill, you know, that's, you know, that's kind of fun for me. Um, as far as in training, though, absolutely not. No, I have the dogs running uphill. Um, they are doing that work. And that's something that we kind of established early on in fall, you know, when we're training on the ATV. And Sean knows having training on these trails are some pretty sick hills. Hannah's Hill. Uh, that's Wait, one is, we is, visit. We is visit Hannah's pretty Hill... frequently. Yes. What's that? Is, okay. You got to yeah. hear this story. Hannah's Hill, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So... <laughs> Sean, I'm visiting Sean with my wife and we're like walking around Husky Homestead and Sean's like, all right, we're going to go back to the apartment or whatever you guys call where Sean stayed. Mm-hmm. And Sean's like, we could walk, we could walk back the long way or we could like kind of take the short route. And like, we're like, okay, cool, man. And like my wife's in like sandals or something. And like, we're just, <laughs> and all of a sudden, like, I'm just like looking at this hill <laughs> And I'm like, you fucking son of a bitch. <laughs> I'm like looking at my wife. I'm like, she's struggling. I'm struggling. I'm like, okay, you you got us. So I just, I was thinking yeah. about that story when, when you guys were talking about that. <laughs> I think everybody's first visit at Husky Homestead, you know, whether they're a guest or an employee, if you survive a first chance encounter at Hannah's Hill, you, you've kind of made it. And uh, my first summer working with Jeff and I was getting to know the trails, you know, without the snow. And I accidentally went down Hannah's Hill. Oh God, down. Yeah. Yeah. With with Lobo on, no, with Lobo on the front end of a bike (laughs) and I bailed. Yeah. The bike survived. Uh, dog's good. Everything's good. But it was one of those, you know, going, it's like crest in the hill of a roller coaster and all of a sudden you look down and oh wow no thank you so uh yeah that was my first um experience with hannah's hill but yeah 
Cranon dogs going up Hannah's Hill on ATV is preferable. Um, but yeah, as far as training dogs in the hills, I think the hill work is important. I think it's also important, and I've been learning that this season too, to not burn them out on hills. You know, we're really blessed in the interior here to have a variety of trails with some awesome hills, mountains, you know, going up the hoot that I think really help prepare the dogs for races. I mean, I don't, I have yet to see a race that isn't somehow simulated in a mini environment here in Denali, which is awesome for training. And, um, as far as training dogs uphill though, Brendan, to answer your question, one of the things I'd love to play with is really getting them in the mindset of making them mentally tough. And what I mean by that is really utilizing the ends of a run, whether it's on the Denali highway or we're coming back to the kennel here, as far as hill training goes to really kind of push them a little bit. You can get away with that when the dog knows where they're going and we're kind of building some of that mental confidence, you know, calling the dogs up to let them run. Oftentimes the last mile or so coming back from a training run, I'll call them up and I'll let them run all the way home. You know, whether I'm going to the trailer, doing those last three hills on the Denali highway, or perhaps it's, um, you know, maybe going up the power line hill behind the theater and asking them to run, you know, and if it's on the ATV, you know, we're gassing it up that hill so that they learn to not only it, I think it creates some mental toughness in there, but it also gets them excited. You know, when they see a hill, it's not, oh, we got to lean into the harness. It's like, hell yeah, you know, we get to run up the hill. And that's something that I really enjoy early on in the season, uh, teaching the dogs to do. So then they do have you know, tight tugs when we're doing copious training, uh, training runs up the, up the hood or wherever it is we are, you know, in a race. And, uh, I'm excited to see what they do at, you know, Rosebud and Eagle summit this year again. <laughs> and just to be sure, cause I don't know if I fully understand, what do you mean by calling them up? So calling them up, you know, we're usually trotting, right? We're doing somewhere between eight and 10 miles per hour for most of the training run. And I will sometimes call a word, you know, sometimes I'll ask the dogs, you know, are you ready? And I'll, you know, make a funny noise or something. And uh, I'll use Twister as an example because Sean knows this dog. But a couple of years ago, I had a rabbit run out in front of the trail in front of me. So, of course, all the dogs get all excited and they, you know, they want to lope and they're pulling. And I think I said, oh, bye bye, you know, in a really high voice. Well, after that, you know, as a joke, I said it one time and they all sped up. So now we've got a word and a tone another phrase I'm sure Sean is familiar with, with the dogs, it's not so much what you say, it's how you say it. <laughs> and uh, I had that in the back pocket for a while. So I was playing with it and, you know, I'd say, bang, bang, you know, in a really high voice and everybody would speed up, you know, they're looking around, looking for the rabbit. And I got a little cocky and I did that three or four times. And on like the fourth time I do it, you know, every dog in the team speeds up, they're running down the trail, except for this one dog twister. And she just kind of keeps her, you know, flawless little trot. And she looks back at me like, you bitch, there's no rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on to your but, tricks. Uh, you know, yeah, have it, you know, having key phrases and things, you know, to call them up, you know, when the time comes and. I do usually when I'm coming back to the kennel, I will call them up and ask them to load and they just think it's the greatest thing in the world. And now, you know, when I'm out on the trail, there's certain things I can say and they will speed up you know, on a dime. And that's so fun to have that, um, that relationship, but also seeing that mental toughness in the dogs. Um, it's pretty cool. I want to, that, that's awesome. I, uh, <laughs> I just was thinking about up going up hills. Like this is something that I don't think a casual fan um understands maybe uh a lot of the times 
when I've run, a, I've run really good dog teams and I've run like maybe less experienced or just, you know, more recreational dog teams, you could say um, that aren't, you know, you know, the Jeff's team has got the like raw materials. His dogs have the raw materials to be an Iditarod winning mm-hmm. team. He's, I mean, he's obviously proved that. And you have a lot mm-hmm. of these dog teams that are on that level. It's a pretty yeah. deep list of teams, actually. Um, but mm-hmm. then you have a lot of dog teams that they don't really have the raw materials to do that, but they do mm-hmm. have the raw materials to finish an Iditarod or maybe finish in the middle of the pack, um, or maybe yeah. they win a shorter race at a faster speed. Um, but a lot of those teams don't have the hill training. And so mm-hmm. when I take those teams up, that it's very convenient. But for some reason, yes. right when I go up the hill, they decide it's, oh, you know what? I think I kind of have to pee right here. And so they <laughs> stop and they mark this bush and then they go another 10 feet and they're like, you know what? Yeah. Actually, that bush, Some I'm thinking another dog. And they have their, and then you hit the same hills and the same runs throughout the month and they are peeing in the same spots in lieu of pulling. <laughs> And that's, mm-hmm. you know, something that you want to be out in front of if you're, mm-hmm. um, you know, a strict trainer of your dogs. It's like, this is not time to take the break going up the hill. Like, okay, mm-hmm. if you really have to take a shit, fine, that's fine. But like, if you're just going to, you're scheduling all your movements for mm-hmm. uphill, that's a problem, right? And, yep. and so that's something you got to work on. And like, basically, you know, when you're going up the hill, the only time you're going to ever help in training going up a hill is is to prevent the sled from stopping. But yep. you don't, you know, once it stops, then they've realized, oh, we can just stop and take a break. It's like, no, they want them to understand once you start going up the hill, we're going until it gets to the top, you know, yep. and it's a, it's a risky place to stop a dog team, you know, on a, if you're on a, a going up a hill, you know, they might kind of mm-hmm. look back and be like, can we go back down? You know, you have yep. a lot of time, those lead dogs that mm-hmm. are, you know kind of curious you go up a hill like hannah's hill these really steep hills they're kind of mm-hmm. like are, is this a hill or is this a wall that we're going up <laughs> and it well it might be both is it is it a two-way direction yeah. is it one way mm-hmm. you know so sometimes you have these teams turning around you got teams mm-hmm. that are with dogs taking breaks and so mm-hmm. that's what you're you know talking about when it, it comes to yeah getting a team that's good at going uphill is they're all yeah. working and they're all putting in the effort and they're not. And some of that you got to build yourself. And that's why, again, it's so important yes. to not only know what your dogs are good at, but know what they're not good at. So you know how to motivate them in those situations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the more favorite quotes, I've, or maybe not a favorite, but I think a really practical, just kind of a light bulb quote that I heard from actually from Dallas Um he was talking to somebody, I think in a podcast and he said, you know, we're training Superman. We're showing the dogs what they can do. We're never showing them something they cannot do. Um, And I think that is such, it's both a profound, I I don't know that I would call it a simple quote because there's so many different takeaways from that. Uh, But in a nutshell, that really is what we're doing with dogs, you know, both at the individual level and in, as a complete organism as well, when we've got, you know, a bunch of, you got 12 dogs on the tow line going up Hannah's Hill. Um, if you can understand how to motivate them, you know, what you've shown them in training, you know, whether it's from day one as a puppy um, on your little puppy walks, um, or it's only been, you know, maybe you've only known them in harness as an adult. There's those little takeaways in training and figuring out how to, again, set that dog up for success by knowing what he's good at, what he's not good at. If he's not good at something, knowing how to motivate him as a trainer. And that's where I'm, I think this season really trying to challenge myself personally, 
um, is not so much looking at, you know, what the dogs are good at, you know, right now, this year, they weren't as good in the hills in the beginning. And so it was figuring out how to use some of those kind of mental tact, mental, what am I trying to say? Mental strategies to kind of build some of that toughness going into the hills and maybe not overworking them um, in the hills. You know, we were kind of going crazy with that in the fall. And it's like dogs need variety. You do the same thing over and over again. They are going to get bored with things. And, you know, just like human athletes, you need a break from you have so many young kids who get burned out at sports because they're in their cleats, you know, 12 months out of the year, you know, dogs need to do different things too. You know, they, we don't, our dogs don't really get a break from the harness. And I, every single fall here at Husky Homestead, because they're still in the harness for summer tours, granted, they're not going very far. Um, I don't necessarily worry about having a huge, heavy September fall training season. You know, my fall training kind of starts later into September um, September, um, is a lot of free running, a lot of swimming, getting the dogs, you know, out doing other things. And then in October, you know, we're starting some of that stronger work, maybe doing a little more stuff in the Hills and whatnot, but now I'm rambling, but there is, it, it, it's a fun aspect for me. I think that is one of the funner aspects as a musher is figuring out how to train your dogs based on what they're good at, but also what they're not good at. Um, and also discovering some things about yourself, you know, your strengths and weaknesses as a coach. So. The, uh, the, you know, Boozer's famous for having every year, he brings pretty much his entire dog yard out to the swamps of Willow in the fall mm -hmm. and just lets them all loose. 40 freaking dogs, <laughs> all loose running around playing with each other. And it, you know, that, that then you're doing something maybe on a smaller scale, but you're doing stuff like that too. And, you mm -hmm. are you know getting dogs comfortable with each other because they feel kind of like there's a certain vulnerability that like a sled dog might have when they're running around loose around 10 other dogs you're like all right who's this guy mm -hmm. over here coming at me I don't know who that is you know and it just kind of mm -hmm. helps build them a little bit of confidence with their teammates and then if you're like stomping around in the swamps and there's water and ponds around get some comfortable with the water that we were talking about earlier and then yep. you know the hills you know, yeah, you don't want to run the hills too much because they get bored. And then then you look at the other side of the coin and you're like, well, we're going to be running on the Yukon River for 250 miles. We actually have to get them good at doing something that's boring, too. You know, and so you're mm -hmm. just constantly mm -hmm. doing this dance of keeping them stimulated, yeah. but also got to get used to them. They got to be ready to be able to do those long, boring um, stretches of the these races. And yeah, mm -hmm. it's like a constant balance. It's both an art and a science. And I think that's one of the, one of the, few, one of the many reasons I should say it, that I love the sport. It's, there's always something new to learn. I don't, I don't necessarily think you've ever arrived, so to speak, um, as a musher, as a coach, as a trainer. And that's the, that's been the fun part thus far. One of the many fun parts and also not so fun parts from time to time, <laughs> if we're being honest. Yeah. So so <clears throat> I'm curious about your future. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you said you've been at Husky Homestead for four years now, and um, it seems like you're enjoying your time there. But, you know, like, uh, do you have aspirations to be on your own, be your own boss? Or are you doing this mm -hmm. while you're young, but you have plans? You want to go back to the lower 48? Curious about what's going on there. 
Yeah, no, I think that's everybody's question. I, uh, you know, Iditarod was the goal and I ended up, you know, loving this area, loving the dogs, loving the people here so much that, you know, I'm still here and we're given the quest a run. And after that, you know, I guess the short answer is, I don't know. I am enjoying my time here. I love dogs. I always see myself in some capacity doing something with dogs to some degree. And uh, I do like the idea of, you know, being my own boss, doing my own thing. Um, Jeff and I have a couple of plans for some breedings uh, this upcoming summer, and I'd like to split a litter with him. You know, I would like to have my own dogs. You know, I don't necessarily fancy myself owning something, um, you know, like Husky Homestead to some degree, but I would love the chance to have my own team, even if it was just a small, you know, recreational group, just to have the option. Um, but yeah, it's loving my time here and um, haven't really taken it more than one season at a time um, since I did a rod, which has been kind of a breath of fresh air. You know, the last three and a half years have been, you know, getting to Iditarod. And now once Iditarod was done, it was in a way kind of like, now what? And uh, still running dogs and still loving that. And I feel, you know, kind of like I'm living the dream here to some degree, not to be cliche, but I do. And yeah, looking forward to another summer here in Denali and kind of seeing where we go from there. Um, I am exploring uh, you know, I also do a little bit of art on the side. You know, at some point I would love to you know, if I could make a living doing dogs and art, I would absolutely be all over that. <laughs> so that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. So you're telling me that um, you don't have the next uh, 49 years planned out? I know, I know. Huh. Okay, because I have my life <laughs> so, totally. Yeah, totally I, I know you have all hour. of it together. I, yeah. Again, impart your wisdom with me. <laughs> Somebody the other day asked me what my, you know, what my next five-year, uh, dude, goal, I hate that five-year plan is, and I oh just kind of thought, you know, I. And you know, it's funny having when you have a goal like the Iditarod, and that's just been the focus for so long. You know, I kind of went through this withdrawal with soccer too. You know, I'd never not done soccer I had just been recruited to go play professionally in Sweden blew my knee out three days later <laughs> and it was one of those in that situation it was a little more devastating but it was definitely it kind of hits home and it hits you hard and you're kind of stripped of an identity to some degree and I remember you know in fall of 2015 when that happened it was just just kind of devastating moment of well now what you know, and I think that's also, you know, a good life lesson to not find your identity in what you do. You know, you need to find that as a person, you know, as much as I love the dogs and they have been my life, you know, for the last four years, well, going on six years now, um, you know, I also take that with a grain of salt. I try not to find my personal identity in that. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's really important to still have the courage to try things that are new. And that was something, I think that's another thing that mushing, you know, kind of taught me granted, I think having some of that athletic background, I think there is a trans, some of that stuff translates over, you know, granted your role is switched. Now you're the coach and you're the dogs are the athletes to some degree. Um, but I definitely, I wouldn't want to get to a point, you know, with the dogs where I feel like I'm being stripped of my identity to some degree and um if that makes sense but 
definitely loving where I'm at with it now. And um, it's still fun for me. And that's what, that's, I think, part of why I'm still here. You know, if it was ever not fun, you know, yes, there's parts that are not fun, you know, November and December, not necessarily fun, <laughs> especially when you're training dogs by yourself and you don't have another person to run that second team. You know, when you come back, you know, you're hooking up the next 10 or 12, whatever it is, and you're going kind of thing. Um, so there's definitely aspects that are challenging and, um, I'll be the first to admit that I'm not the greatest with sleep deprivation. So I definitely look like a zombie in November and December. <laughs> I like my sleep. I'm not going to lie. Maybe that's a bad quality as a mushroom, whatever I've, I've made it this far, but, uh, um, yeah, so there's definitely aspects of it where, yes, it's hard. Yes. It's challenging. Um, the rewards have so been worth it though. And it's kept me around, you know, I'm still here. I can't say what the next five years is going to bring. Um, but I think it's important to do your best with the time that's allotted to you in that moment. So quest is the goal in the next two weeks. And after that, who knows? <laughs> so, uh, who knows? <laughs> so like there, now that you've done the Iditarod, you're kind of like, okay, mm -hmm. I don't necessarily have to run that like again, or mm -hmm. you're like, I kind of want to do it maybe later on down the road or. You're just like, I'm definitely open to both, you know, right now, like I said, Jeff and I have a couple litters that we're trying to plan for this upcoming summer. Um, and so that could, you know, add numbers for the future. You know, obviously they're not going to be ready to do a this next year. Um, we're probably going to retire a couple more dogs this upcoming season. So there is that, that balance of, you know, if I did a rod is in the question, it would definitely be a more future endeavor. Um, we're kind of in the process of rebuilding a team, you know, if, if that's what we're doing, so to speak, you know, Jeff is kind of retired at this point and that's, you know, fair. The guy's done how many thousand mile events totally earned it in my opinion. And uh, we're still enjoying the tour scene at Husky Homestead during the summer. You know, that's still kind of the main bread and butter. It's obviously not um, as frequent as it has been in the past. You know, back in the day, it was, he was running it seven days a week, three tours a day kind of deal. Um, right now we're more on the scale of five days a week, um, three every once in a while, four tours a day, um, but kind of more in that two to three um, range. So yeah, there's definitely from a business standpoint and running dogs, um, you know, like I said, I think part of the reason our working relationship has worked out for so long is we kind of just take it one season at a time. You know, the only goal we had from the very first meeting that I had with Jeff King was I just said, hey, I'm here to run the Iditarod. If that's not happening, I got to go somewhere else. And he said, okay. And uh, that was the goal we worked towards and accomplished. And now it's, you know, we got to decide what we want to do with the next four years. Nice. And I, I, I guess it. that's still kind of ambiguous, but I, I don't think we'll visit that till after the quest. So, right. Right. Yeah. Sean, you got anything else? You know, I, uh, I think I'm, I'm, I think we're, we've covered a lot and I've had, there's been like a lot of moments where you've been like, you know, on the podium, Amanda, just like preaching, just like freaking, I feel <laughs> like there's going to be like a three minute clip of you just like, like some, put some kind of inspirational music behind it and be like, sometimes life, you know, will hand you lemons. <laughs> you got to make lemonade. You got to make lemonade. Well, well, I hope I was semi-coherent given that I'm kind of running on four hours of sleep. You're like, you're going to be like, 
look you know there's like all those motivational people on social media you know like (laughs) being one of those people where you're just like i get up every morning 6 a.m you know what i do i drink 12 (laughs) dozen raw eggs then i do 7,000 pull-ups right oh man no you're not like that at all um but yeah i think uh i think we've had a nice chat and um is there like a way for people to follow you or you know do you want to do some self-advertising for um you know for people to check you out during the quest yeah absolutely i think we'll have somebody managing our husky homestead social media page so if you go to husky homestead tours um jeff has actually has agreed i don't know if you guys know this to do some kind of social media commentary for the quest because he's going to be there handling for me so he's going to be out there on the trail yet giving his spiel so i'm sure a lot of folks will be interested in doing that i don't know um where that is going to be broadcast at this point i'm not sure if that's going to be on the yukon quest alaska page or if that's also going to be shared on husky homestead i'm sure it'll be both um and then my personal handle is auto up north and that's my handle for both um instagram and i think facebook as well so you should get definitely instagram though dude can you like please pitch to jeff (laughs) the uh that he needs to be on the like at the table for iditarod for an iditarod analyst like you know there you go i mean greg and bruce are great but you know you can't beat a four-time champ going up there and giving his two cents on something so yeah i think that'd be great I'm so, yeah. I know that Jeff would love it, you know, and he would yeah. love it. Everyone else would love it, you know, oh, yeah. so I hope that they can get, you know, there's all these people that they can pull from, you know, mm-hmm. Jeff, Martin Boozer, um, and uh, Dallas isn't running, Mitch isn't running, like, those are all yeah. free, the, you know. It's such a pool of knowledge and experience. It would be cool if we could get them all up there as, you know, like a panel. I, yeah. I think that's kind of a lofty uh, wishful thinking, but yeah, yeah. I'm, I'll <laughs> you never know. One. Yeah, I'll settle for <laughs> yeah. one of those dudes. And yeah. uh, Ali Zirkel will get up there and talk. You know, there's all these yeah. people that aren't racing. That would be so pretty many. sick to hear from. Yeah. So, yeah. so, uh, so many Amanda. good perspectives. Mm-hmm. Before we started the podcast, uh, I just have to share with you, you may, you've made Sean's top 10, right? And uh, I think I wrote the quote I wrote down. Oh, God. <laughs> Take it with a grain Amanda's of like top 10 best friends I have in Alaska, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've made it. <laughs> you made it. You made my top 10. Well, you're in my top 10, too, Sean. <laughs> oh, goodness, Amanda. Yeah. You, you, when I click and I, my- I, I, and yeah, I'm, when I'm i stop gonna... clicking record you're gonna be like dude no you're not even like top 50 <laughs> <laughs> he's buried he's buried and you're and you're going with one of my other top 10 friends in the world on a rafting trip you haven't even mentioned that and so i i won't see you at the quest obviously because no. you're going to be in the grand canyon i know i'm going to be floating the grand canyon we've gotten all this steam rolling on this podcast and then right when things are people are starting to listen and we've figured out a good rhythm of things i've left the entire uh in the, you know off the grid for three and a half weeks so brendan right, good luck well, <laughs> we'll have I to got- do it we'll do a part two a post quest and post rafting trip we, we experience need, yeah, we'll need yeah. you to come back and, yeah. and uh have a post quest talk in february with us if you if you have time to cool cool well, let's do it all right <laughs> I'm pressing stop.